The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com slash connect. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Can I get you? Yeah, you can turn those on. That'd be great. Thanks. Um, good to see you guys. How are we doing? Super good to be with you. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. Grab a Bible, go to Matthew 27. That's where we're going to be hanging out. Uh, Matthew 27 and 28 today. Uh, as we kind of dive into what we're diving into. Uh, It's good. It's really good to be back with you after, uh, to be honest, um, I'm going to be okay, Uh, not a fully planned break. Uh, So as some of you are aware, at the end of June, uh, about a month ago, Lindsay and I experienced a miscarriage. And uh, while it goes without saying that you don't process that kind of grief in three and a half weeks, I'm really grateful for just our team here and Garrison as uh, my co-pastor and uh, just our staff and ministry team being willing to say, hey, first and foremost, you're not a pastor, you're a follower of Jesus and then a husband and then a father. And so you need to get some space to just kind of bear the initial weight of this grief. And so it's been, um, I'm just grateful uh, for that, that chance um, Yeah, I'm so grateful for so many of you who have prayed for us and brought meals and texted and called. Um, I've had a lot of thoughts over the past month, and never once has it crossed my mind to doubt the love of this church family for us. So thank you. Uh, Thank you for being the hands and feet of Jesus to us over the past three weeks. Uh, I'm so, so incredibly grateful for you guys. Uh, I'm also really eager to preach today, uh, if not only just for myself. Uh, this one's more for me, so you can uh, listen in if you want to, uh, but this one's for me. Uh, and what I mean by that is about a week into getting the news, I was just struggling with how to process. Like I was, I was struggling with how do, how do I make sense of this in my mind? And I was passed along by a friend of mine, a book by a guy named Jerry Sitzer, who you guys know that I love. I referenced his book, Water from a Deep Well, uh, earlier in the series. What I didn't know is that he wrote a book two decades before that about some of his experience of suffering. And the book was called A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. And I opened up that book, and in the very uh, introduction, he talks about how when he faced the suffering that he faced, his initial thought was to want to pull back, to stop writing. And he said a friend encouraged him, hey, what if the means by which, or a means by which God wants to bring you through the suffering is actually by doing what he has wired you to do, which is to write? And as I thought about that, and I thought about this craft that I I feel called to do, that I get paid to do, that I give so much of my life to do, this craft of preaching, what if it was not something I should run from in the midst of grief, but rather something the Lord actually wants to use to help me process through all of this, right? Think about painters. How do painters process their grief? They paint. Or musicians. How do they process their grief? They do music stuff, right? (laughs) And so I thought, what if, Lord, what if part of how you want to do it, not holistically, but part of how you want to help walk this, me through this is through preaching? And then the next thought is, what a better sermon to help process through this grief than he descended to help. And if that sounds strange to you, my hope and prayer and goal is that over the course of the next 35 minutes or so, it will not. What I want to do for us this morning, my explicit goal, is to take this line, he descended to hell, that we all like kind of mumble, because <laughs> we're like, I don't know, did he? From head scratching to hope growing. That's my goal, from head scratching to hope growing. So if you would, let's stand and let's read the creed together as we've been starting every week, and then I'll pray and we'll get right to Matthew 27. Church, this is our confession with the saints through history. 
Let's read this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Before you're seated, let's pray. Lord, we give you all of the honor and glory that you're due knowing that even our best attempts at words and worship fall short because of how great you are, and yet you delight in the sacrifices of your people. Lord, so we offer our hearts to you. We offer our lives as living sacrifices of worship to you, Lord, that you would do what you've done for centuries, shape your people by your word. Lord, I've been so reminded this week of Luke 24 in the Emmaus Road. As Christ opens up the scriptures to these two men, that their hearts burn within them. So what I pray is we open up your word, that you would do the same for us, that as we see Jesus in the scriptures, from the scriptures, the point of the scriptures, that our hearts would burn within us. We would give you all the praise. We love you, we need you. Pray all these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, can be seated. Now, to help us remember where we're at, uh, we are in section two of the creed. So remember, we said that the creed is broken up into three sections. Section one was about God the Father Almighty, who he is as creator of heaven and earth. And then section three, as we'll get to in a few weeks, is the Holy Spirit and the work the Holy Spirit does to shape and to mold and to preserve the church. But section two, what we're in right now, is about the person and work of Jesus. And we said the creed breaks that work of Jesus into five parts. Just by way of reminder, they'll be on the screen. And the first part we said was the incarnation, right? Christ, who has existed from eternity past, takes on flesh, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, enters into humanity. And then we said the second part of his work is his substitution, that he stands in our place. He takes our punishment on himself, dies the death on the cross we and our sins deserve. And so Jesus has died, right? That's where we stopped. Part two, let me ask you a question. Then what happens? What happens after Jesus dies? Now at this point you're like, it hasn't been that long, Tim. Okay, it's only been three weeks. Like, look, it's resurrection. Like we know, right? Easter Sunday, right? After Good Friday comes Easter Sunday. But let me ask you a question. What comes between Friday and Sunday? Saturday. It was more rhetorical, but thank you. (laughs) What is Jesus doing on Saturday? What is he doing between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? What is he doing in this period of quiet? Well, the creed tells us he descended to hell. Now, if you're like, that's confusing, what in the world? You would not be alone. So, little background, this line from the creed has actually been a point of controversy and tension throughout history. It was actually a late addition to the creed. So, we said week one, early versions of the Apostles' Creed are found as early as the first century. But there's no evidence in corporate worship of the church, including this line, he descended to hell, until really really the fourth or fifth or even the sixth century. And in fact, many churches and church traditions today don't even include this line. They'll just skip 
right over it. I remember in seminary when I started getting uh, really interested and fascinated by church history, going to my first Ash Wednesday service. If you're not familiar, it's something that we do now as the rhythm of our church that kicks off the season of Lent, the 40 days of preparation leading up to Easter. And I remember going to an Anglican church with a friend, and we stood up during the Ash Wednesday service to read the creed, and I'm reading it like, I, yes, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and you go through it, and it's like, he descend, what? Wait, pause. <laughs> he descended where? To what? Huh? And so I want to help us. Remember, I want to take this line from head scratching to hope growing. So what does it mean? What does it mean and why is it good news when the creed says Jesus descended to hell? So to see that, let's look together at Matthew 27. We'll start in verse 45. So Jesus is on the cross. He's suffering. And this is what happens. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you want to uh, highlight, underline that phrase, it's hugely important. We'll come back to it in a second. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. So they think Jesus is starting to hallucinate and they're trying to snap him back into reality. Verse 49. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So this passage is Matthew's telling of Jesus' final moments on the cross, and it points us to what I'm going to argue is a twofold meaning of the phrase descended to hell. So there are two layers to this line. Let's break this down together. The first layer of descended to hell is the physical layer. It's the physical layer, right? Stay with me. This is the most kind of heady we'll be today. One of the distinct frustrations that various scholars have with the English language is that it can be very lazy. So often what has happened throughout the centuries is that folks have taken several words and combined them into one when it makes its way to English. The clearest example of this you may know is the word love. So in the ancient Greek, there's actually six words, four in the New Testament, for what we would say in English is love. There's eros, which means romantic love, or phileo, which we get our Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, or agape, which means godly, self-sacrificing love. In America, we have one word for love, and it is Love, right? I love my wife and I love queso. Same word, vastly different meanings. Hopefully, right? And the same is actually true for the word hell. Stay with me. So since around the 17th century, the English word hell has been used primarily to speak of the place or state of eternal judgment, suffering, and torment reserved for those who reject Jesus. So remember, hell is the, the bad place. Heaven is the good place. That's how we think about hell today. But our one English word hell actually comes from two different Greek words with two very different meanings. The first Greek word translated as hell is the word Gehenna. And this is what the scriptures use to refer to that place of suffering and judgment. Clear example of Gehenna is Matthew 5, 29. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into Gehenna. So the first word that's translated is Gehenna, and that's what we typically think of, the place of suffering and judgment. The second word translated to hell is the word Hades. And Hades is not like the Hercules bad guy, all right? 
This is what the scriptures refer, use to refer to the place of the departed or the collective realm or abode of the dead. So Hades includes Gehenna, but it also includes what the scriptures refer to as paradise or Abraham's bosom, Luke 19, or heaven. Let me give you a picture. This is my artistic drawing of it. Maybe this will be helpful. So Hades is the collective realm of the dead, which includes two places, Gehenna, the place of suffering and torment, and paradise, the place of joy and holiness. Best illustration I have is think of Carowinds, right? Carowinds as a whole includes two places, the theme park where the roller coasters are and the water park where the water slides are. You can decide which one's Gehenna, which one's paradise, all right? Carowinds, one park, two parts that make up the park. And that's what the Bible says when it comes up with Hades. Hades is the realm, the abode. Everyone who dies goes to Hades. Either Gehenna, the place of suffering and torment for those who reject Jesus, or paradise, heaven, the place of joy and holiness and perfection. Now, why this matters is that the word Hades is the word the original translations of the Greek actually used, of the creed actually used. And some actually keep that language today. So if you were to visit a Lutheran church in particular, you might hear them say, not he descended to hell, but rather he descended to Hades. And so when the early Christians wrote and affirmed and confessed, we believe Jesus descended into hell, what they meant was not that Jesus went into Gehenna, the place of suffering and torment, but rather that he went to Hades, the collective dwelling place of the dead. This is backed up a number of places in scripture. Let me just give you a few. First is Acts 2. Acts 2, this is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Holy Spirit has showed up. Peter gets up and preaches, tells the story of Jesus. And this is what we read in Acts 2, 25. It says, for David says concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. So Peter here references a Psalm, Psalm 1610, written thousands of years earlier by King David. And he says, when David writes in Psalm 1610 about himself, God won't let his Holy One be abandoned, or better translation, left behind in Hades. Peter says that's a foreshadowing where unknown to David, he's actually writing about the future King Jesus that God won't let Jesus, the Holy One, be left in Hades. What's the implication there? Where's Jesus after he dies? Hades. I'll give you another one, Luke 23, 39 through 43. This is Jesus on the cross. Remember, he has two criminals, one on his left and one on his right. And this is what he said. This is what the text says. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, hanged, railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus says, Today, when we die, you and me, we are going to be in paradise. Where is paradise? Hades. What's the implication? Where is Jesus going to be after he dies on the cross? Hades. Now, what was Jesus doing during those three days in Hades? Well, that's where scholars get a little more uh, disagreement, right? 
The best indicator that we have or think we have is 1 Peter 3. It seems to indicate, if you want to go read it later, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, seems to point to Jesus in Hades preaching the good news of the kingdom to those who trusted in God prior to him entering earth. We don't know. It's best not to speculate past what the scriptures are clear on. But here's why it matters that we have this line. Here's what this means. Here's what all of that backstory got us to. This line means Jesus actually died. That's what it means to say and confess together. He descended to hell means Jesus actually died. Look back at Matthew 27, verse 50. It says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. You see, Jesus' death was not an illusion. It was not a magic trick or a miracle where he appeared to be dead. Jesus actually died. His soul left his body. His body was placed in the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, and his soul went to Hades, the abode of the dead. Jesus actually died. In the words of one theologian, how dead was Jesus? Dead, dead. Dead, dead. Jesus was dead. He actually died to the fullest extent of what it means to die. Here's Alistair McGrath. He puts it this way. Jesus was really human like us. His divinity does not compromise his humanity. Being God incarnate did not mean he was spared from tasting death. He did not merely seem to die. He really did die and joined those who had died before him. So that's the first layer, the physical layer. Let's talk now about the spiritual layer, the spiritual layer of descended to hell. So descended to hell means Jesus actually died but it's also used to point to the spiritual hell or spiritual Gehenna that Jesus faced in the cross. So Jesus faced what could only be described as hell in the spiritual torment of judgment and wrath poured out on him by the heavenly father. Let me show this to you. Look back at our passage, Matthew 27, this picture we are given of Jesus' final moments on the cross. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Ryan talked last week about the physical suffering of Jesus, right? That he comes not to be served, but to serve. And he gives up his life in a tremendous amount of physical pain and agony. The crucifixion, as he mentioned, wasn't even talked about because of how horrific it was, right? That Jesus would be whipped 39 times, one shy of death, have a crown of thorns bigger than our fingers placed onto his head, facing all kinds of physical torment. But that, the scriptures are clear, is not the full extent of the agony. Because what's happening in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So remember back in week two, right? The Trinity from before time began, God, the father loving God, the son and God, the son loving God, the father and God, the Holy Spirit wrapped up in all of that. And somehow in a mystery hard to explain at the cross, while there is no rupture or break in that Trinity, Jesus's experience of that relationship in that moment is broken. So in order for Jesus to face or pay the full penalty of judgment for sin and sinners, he must experience the loss of everything he had with the Father. So when the text says, why have you forsaken me? It carries with it the idea of a son being disowned by his dad. Jesus, who was God's perfect son, is experiencing on the cross as he bears our sin, takes our punishment, the spiritual reality of all who do not trust in Christ, the absence of being God's child. See that? can only be described as Gehenna, as hell. 
You want to talk about what makes hell hell? It's not a bunch of flames. Hell's not like one giant oven. What makes hell hell is the rebellious soul getting what it always desired, freedom from the loving union of God, which can only be described as utter torment. This is Michael Horton. This is how he says it. He says, hell is not ultimately about fire, but about God. Whatever the exact nature of the physical punishments, the real terror awaiting the unrepentant is God himself and his inescapable presence forever with his face turned against them. You see, we often think about heaven as being the place of God's presence and hell being the absence of God's presence. It's not actually true. Hell is not the absence of God's presence. It's the fullness of his presence without the intimacy and relationship through the blood of Jesus, which makes it all the more horrific all the more full of torment and suffering and pain. And that is the agony Jesus faces on the cross as he says, God who I've been in perfect relationship with from before time even existed has now forsaken me so that he would not forsake all who trust in Christ. That is the agony of the cross. That is the spiritual death of descending into hell. In the words of John Calvin, he says it this way, not only was Christ's body given as the price of our redemption, but he paid a greater and more excellent price in suffering in his soul, the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man. Surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God. And when you call upon him not to be heard. Jesus feels in this moment for the first time in eternity, the presence of God to judge. He senses and feels the reality of Gehenna, the reality we all deserve because of our sin. Jesus takes himself on the cross. So Jesus descends to hell by actually dying and by absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. And so it's worth pausing here to ask, do you feel the weightiness of this line? Do you feel the strength of this part of the creed? That when the church throughout time and space confesses together, we believe Jesus Christ ascended to hell. What we are confessing is that Jesus experienced the full weight and agony of physical death and the full weight and agony of spiritual death. Jesus knows death. He knows what it is to die physically, to go to the grave, and he knows what it is to die spiritually, to experience separation from God. After all, isn't that the penalty and price for sin? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. Physical death, death enters the world, all things, including humanity, now head towards death and decay. And spiritual death, separated from life forever with God. And here's the good news. Jesus faces both, experiences both, and therefore knows both. What incredible solace and comfort, right? When Hebrews 4 tells us we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It's not blowing smoke. It's not saying sort of. Jesus knows the full agony of what it means to be human, even up to the greatest agony we can face, physical and spiritual death. That's the good news of the cross. Church, it gets even better because our hope today is not simply that Jesus knew death, therefore he can sympathize with us, but that Jesus conquered death, therefore he can deliver us. What good news the creed doesn't end here, right? Like, can you imagine if we got up every Sunday and we were like, all right, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended to hell, end of story, pack it in and go home. We're halfway through the series, and that is good news (laughs) because of everything that comes after it, because of the hinge point of our faith. Listen, it is good news that Jesus came into humanity as a baby. Good news. Yes, I love Christmas. I'm not anti-Christmas. And it is good news that Jesus died. 
But the hinge point of our faith, according to Paul, right? First Corinthians, if this is not true, we're to be pitied more than everybody else on earth. The hinge point of our faith, the central core reality of Christianity is that Jesus rose again. The resurrection. If Jesus doesn't get up from the grave, this is all pointless. I'm not here on Sundays. I'm on a boat. <laughs> Probably on Lake Wiley. Superior. We're not here worshiping. The central reality of our faith is the resurrection of Christ. And here's the good news is that Matthew 27 isn't the end of Matthew. Turn one page, right? Turn one chapter. So Jesus dies. His soul and body are separated. His body goes into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. His soul goes to Hades, but keep reading. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay. I love the wording of Luke. Why do you search for the living among the dead? Why do you search for Jesus where he is not to be found? The tomb is empty. Jesus' soul does not remain in Hades, and his body does not stay in the tomb. So not only, church, does Jesus know what it means to die, but he knows what it means to rise. And just as the death of Jesus has physical and spiritual layers, so too does his resurrection. Let me show you this. Let's look at the first, the spiritual layer of Jesus' resurrection. You see, the spiritual reality of the Gehenna that Jesus faced means there's spiritual life on offer for us in Christ. The good news of the resurrection means that all of us who are dead in our sins, which Ephesians 2 would say is all of us, can be made alive to God. We can be raised to walk in newness of life, that we who are dead and separated from God can now enter into spiritual life with him because of the resurrection. This is how Romans 6 puts it. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, the spiritual layer of Christ's resurrection means that Satan and sin don't win. That you are not stuck as a slave to your sin anymore. That your end is not and does not have to be dead in sin. But you can be made alive to God in Christ Jesus. The spiritual reality of the resurrection shows us that regardless of how great we think our sin is, how great we think our addictions are, how great we think our rebellion against God is, that God, like Luke 15 and the good father, chases after those who are rebellious. Well, we were still sinners, not while we started making ourselves good, while we were still sinners, not while we started attending church a little more, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us to make us alive in Christ Jesus. That is the good news of the spiritual reality of the resurrection, but there's a physical layer as well. Because our hope is not simply that we are and will be raised to new spiritual life, but that also our future for those who trust in Christ is a physical resurrection as well. Though at death, your body is going to go into the ground and your spirit, if you believe in Jesus, will go to paradise in the presence of God. Even, notice the church, even that paradise with God is not forever because there's something better coming. 
Our future is not eternity as floating souls in this ethereal cloud land. Our future is the resurrection of the body, that I will live forever with Jesus in a better, praise the Lord, better version of this. That I will be raised. Isn't that what 1 Thessalonians 4 promises, right? Because Christ has been raised, we too will be raised. Therefore, encourage one another with these words, because we will always be with the Lord. So because Jesus rose, 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits, meaning we too will rise. Here's how he puts it, 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, dang it, Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. One day Christ will return, and the promise for all who trust in him is that we too will rise. We will shed our earthly bodies, gain new glorious physical bodies. Death won't have the last laugh. It is swallowed up in victory. Its sting will be no more, and we will always be with the Lord. And so there's an encouragement for us here, church, that yes, Christ was dead, dead, but there's a deeper encouragement that he also rose again. And he lives. And so we too will live with him forever if we trust in Christ. And here's the promise of the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Amen. Death will not win. And so when I say, I don't know of a better line than descended to hell for us to cling to in our grief, I mean it, church. I mean it. Listen, I have been more acquainted with the reality of death in the last three weeks than ever before in my entire life. And one, that shows God's kindness to me that I haven't had to face it like this. But I've been so acquainted with just how dark and final death seems. Like the, the prevailing like, point of my grief, if I can circle it down and eventually get it into one line, I think the darkest part of it is how final it seems. Like how just complete it seems in my mind. And so off and on over the past four weeks, I have felt the, the full gamut of emotions that you feel. I've walked through the anger. I've walked through the weeping. I've walked through the frustration and the bitterness. I've walked through the doubt. I've walked through the disbelief. I've, I've walked through the full gamut of it. And I've found myself, I think rightly and with the scriptures, shouting in my prayers, Lord, this is not how it's supposed to be. And as I'm thinking about Matthew 27, and I'm thinking about the reality of this line of the creed, it's like I've been hearing in my prayers, shouted back across time, exactly. Exactly. That's the whole point. That's why we confess together. He descended to hell and on the third day rose again from the grave. Because here's in our, in our grief, because if you've not faced death like this, unfortunately, the reality of living as humans is that you will. It's a part of the curse. We all face our own deaths. We face the death of those that we love. So here's what we cling to. When I'm angry at God over death, he knows what it means to die. And when I'm bitter and frustrated, like, Lord, I've been giving up my life to serve you, right? Like, there are, I've been giving up my life to serve you. And it goes like this, that he knows what it means to die. And when I'm confused, like, when the doctors tell us there's nothing we could have done differently to prevent it. And I'm confused why suffering is real. He knows what it means to die. 
but he also knows what it means to live again. And he also knows what it means to rise. And he also means it when he says that death has been defeated. And so church, when we say this line together over the weeks to come and over the years to come in the future of our church, take great comfort. When you say he descended to hell, take great comfort in the reality of our high priest who knows what it means to die. And then when you say the next line, he rose again three days later, take great confidence in the conquering king who defeated death. Let it bolster your hope. Head scratching to hope growing. That's this line of the creed for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We need you. Lord, we, we trust in your goodness and kindness that though death is a reality now because of sin, it will not always be. Lord, there's a day coming where the last enemy to be defeated is death. And so, Lord, we, we weep because death... Death is painful, and it's not how it should be, and it hurts, and there's a finality to it this side of the sun. And so we weep, and we mourn rightfully, but we do not mourn as those without hope. We hope in our mourning that death will be defeated, that Christ will come again, and the promise of the scriptures is that all who trust in him will rise to newness of life forever. And so we cling to that in our pain. We cling to that in our grief. We cling to that in our sorrow. We believe that for one another when it's hard for us to believe that for ourselves. And we trust you. Lord, and so I pray for those in the room who don't know you, who have not been raised to walk in newness of life through the power of the gospel, Lord, that you would convict even today, that you would open their hearts even today, that you would speak even today, Lord, that they would confess faith in you, turn from their sin, trust in you, even today that they would experience death to their old selves and life with you now. So we trust you and ask you to save. Lord, and for those of us who are, are facing, have faced, will face the reality of death, Lord, I pray that you would speak comfort over our souls, that you know what it means to die. That you faced that great torment. You faced that great pain. You faced that great suffering. And that you came out on the other side promising that death is not the end of the story. So help us, Lord, cling to the promise. Cling to the hope. Lord, we remember that the resurrection of all who trust in you is not potential. It's not maybe. It's not 75%. It's guaranteed. To you, Lord, it is as if it has already happened. Sure, confident, steady. And so we root our hope in you confidence in you, the conquering king. Lord, we love you. We need you. Probably sing some Christ's name. Amen.